you can be completely immersed in your work and immersed in what you're doing and completely start to forget how to take care of yourself. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Making Ways, the podcast all about finding your unexpected path to a creative career. I'm your host, Rob Goodman. I'm a marketer, a storyteller, and an artist, and I'm so excited to be joined on the show today by Donald Burlock. Donald is our first industrial designer on the show, and he talks all about his experiences at firms like IDEO. He's working at Facebook now. He also talks about the lessons he learned in leadership when he struck out on his own and formed his own design agency and consultancy. In our conversation, you'll learn a lot about what makes for a great studio and creative space, and I think you'll hear some lessons about tackling a creative career that you can apply to your world no matter what you do. If you've ever been curious about the role of an industrial designer or what that is or what they do, this is a great episode for you. Special thanks to our sponsor, Soothe. It is sponsors like them that make this show, this independent podcast, possible. So thank you so much to Soothe. It is an on-demand massage service. If you use the offer code MAKINGWAYS, you can get $20 off your first massage. I've done it. It's amazing. You can get it at home, in the office, on the road, at a hotel. And I had a really great experience. Okay, without further ado, let's start our conversation with Donald Burlock. Donald, welcome to the show. I am super happy to be here. I appreciate it so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's a thrill to have you. And we've been having some firsts lately. Maybe you're the first industrial designer on the show. That might That's be special. that might be possible. Wow. Um, yeah. So it's really exciting Ooh, to it's an honor. Yeah. For yeah. all industrial designers. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. Yeah. Uh no, it's uh it's a great thing. And you know, you've had an incredible path in your your career. Uh, you're at Facebook now. You've been right. at IDEO. Um, yes. You've had some startup success. You've also gone off and started your own agency. Yes. So why don't we why don't we start off just talking a little bit about what you do on a daily basis as an industrial designer? Mm. And you also have this really interesting background where you work as an industrial designer, but you also have a lot of brand and marketing mm-hmm. background. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about the intersection of that in your work. But let's just start off like, yeah. what what is going on as oh, an industrial a, a designer? A day in the life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, a day in the life still feels very much like um, seeking out a studio experience. So for me during the day, there's always some point that I'm looking to get inspired by either going and taking a long walk or talking with people or maybe just making something. There's still a big part of my day where even if it's uh, sketching a few post-it notes, then that still becomes, you know, some of the activity for the day. So I, I still feel like as an industrial designer by trade, inherently I'm searching for some moment where I feel like I've made a little something like I've, I always feel like I contribute a little bit more to the world if I've just made a thought come to life. Like if I've just graduated something from, you know, in my mind to right. like reality, something that people can can talk to or touch or right. or think about. So, and is everything yeah. that you are bringing into reality happening in a physical space or is it sometimes 
a digital product? There's digital products, but I still think that what I tend to bring out is physical. So whether I spend time in the digital world for a little bit, there's still something that I feel like it needs to it needs to translate to something you know physical. Yeah, um, whether it's environmental in context or or you know product in nature. So that seems to continue to be and kind of a, a functional thing yeah. daily. Yeah. And, and growing up, were you more on the creative side? Oh. Were you more on like <laughs> the math and science yeah. side? And and was this your your course of study in, in college? You know, here's what's so funny about it. Um, I think any creative probably can think back to a moment where they were doing something and it was just natural, it was super organic. And then maybe there was an audience you know, whether it was family members or someone in school and they said, Oh my goodness, you're really good at that. That's amazing. Yeah. Keep doing that. And I think everybody I've talked to who works in design or is a creative or works in sort of a world combining those two things has some moment in their childhood where they were doing that and they were applauded, they were encouraged and, and it, it was like riding a bike for them. Yeah. And for me, it's the same. I think that I gravitated towards making things with clay. Uh-huh. Uh, my mom was fantastic with leaving me with lots of materials to get my hands on. <laughs> she figured if uh, if she gave me enough stuff, then I would leave everything else alone that right. you know she didn't want me to touch, and I right. would go make stuff. Yeah. So she always tells me a story about when I was like four, or five. I was I was cracking eggs like all around the house, <laughs> and she came home. There was egg all over the house. And at first she was really upset. And then she realized I was just trying to figure out what the heck was going on with these eggs. Like I have this hard <laughs> shell and then like, you know, I, I drop it and oh my goodness, there's right. like all this goop coming out. And I'm like, you know, so I'm going around trying to figure out That's a pretty how do amazing... I make sure eggs don't like crack, right, right. like depending on what I do with them. And oh so then gosh. after that, she was like, okay, you kid need, you need clay. We're going to, we're going to get you some, you know, paper mache stuff going right. over here and i had like a corner of like stuff <laughs> and and that's how i started i was making like dinosaurs and you know i would anything i would see or yeah. imagine i would just start making that's a pretty in- intuitive <laughs> or in tuned parent to not just be really angry and be blinded by the anger of this you know a toddler you you, you were I was like, like i was like four yeah, yeah you know like four or just five. ruining the kitchen and everything but being like wait, wait hold on a second what's he doing what's he thinking about how can i how can i put this in the right direction that's that's pretty amazing yeah it actually was really game changing because i don't know if i started sketching or illustrating until i was a lot older i was yeah. probably in like 4th or 5th grade before i even discovered i could draw oh, or wow. i could sketch which is usually right it, maybe a lot of kids or most kids are drawing and some have the the innate ability and others are just doing it for fun but usually that happens first but you that's wanted right. to you wanted to put things together with your hands. I, I wanted to make stuff with my right. hands. And it wasn't just um, grabbing like Lincoln Logs or, or Legos. Like that stuff was fun too. But what was interesting is I didn't necessarily gravitate to that stuff. I gravitated towards really organic stuff hmm. that I could feel and I could mold and I could shape. Yeah. So those were like the early memories of being really creative as a kid. That's yeah. That's kind of where I felt like it started. That's awesome. Yeah. And then in, in high school and college, did you gradually gravitate towards industrial design or had you not kind of figured out that? I, that I didn't. You know, I grew up in the Midwest and 
there was so much emphasis on everything but art when I was growing up. Um, music, sure. The kids that were great in sports, then you had a lot of attention there, basketball, football, baseball, all this, all this stuff that, you know, back in the day, you know, you fit into a category. Right. And you're a jock, you're, you're a jock, you're, you know, a cheerleader, right. uh, you play in the band. Sure. And so for kids that did art, it was still looked at as, oh, you're, you, you're the kid who kind of like sketches or draws. So it wasn't really looked at as a, as a thing to pursue. Yeah. And I felt like it was something that at the time was more of an outlier for me. I didn't really put a lot of attention on it. Until I got maybe until like my junior year. Mm. And I'd always taken art. I had always had, you know, fairly positive comments from like my art teachers. But I'll never forget I had an art teacher. It's always our teachers, right? You know, <laughs> that make these memories. But I had right. an art teacher who taught this advanced drawing class. And the class was full of some really talented kids who were actually going to go study art. Uh, yeah. Actually go on to to you know pursue uh you know uh, degrees in painting sure. and, and things like this and so i'm in the class and yeah i felt like i was doing some good stuff mm-hmm. and you know stuff i would take home and you know my mom's like oh that looks really great yeah but i remember i had this teacher and he was so hard on me and at the time i didn't get it i i was so frustrated i was like why is this guy so hard on me Right, and he was really tough on like everything I would draw, everything I would produce. Um, I never felt like I was actually creating really good drawings in his class, and yeah. it was an advanced illustration class. And I, you know, sketching was my escape. You right. know, that was my escape during the day taking that class. And in retrospect, I look at it now, and I can tell he was really pushing me because he saw talent, mm. but he wouldn't say that. And so I saw him spend time with other kids because. You know, they were going and, you know, they were going to pursue these degrees. Right. But with me, it was almost like he didn't know what to do with it, but he wanted me to, like, go further. He would be like, you can shade that better or, like, your perspective could be better. Yeah. You know? So it's it's just funny thinking back to that because at the time it wasn't such a big deal. Mm -hmm. And it probably wasn't until I got to college. I started um, engineering. That's a – it was, like, the thing I thought I could do because I would – take physics. Physics was fun at the time. You know, it wasn't so much the math. It was the fact that I could draw the diagrams and then I could figure stuff out. Right. And it was like sophomore year of college that I was in a mechanics class and the professor in front of everybody said, what are you, are you your architect? Like you spend just as much time answering the questions as you do redrawing the diagrams. Like maybe (laughs) you should go. And he made a joke in front of everyone. He was like, maybe you should go do architecture. (laughs) And, and it reminded me of when I was taking that class right. and I thought, you know what, I, I need to do more with this. Yeah. You know, like this is, this is kind of a, an ability and yeah. I, I just don't know what to do with it. And yeah. that, that was kind of the start. And you naturally gravitated towards that. So I think listening to where you kept going back to was important. Yeah. So, so when he said that, what, what happened? Like, did you change Majors? Did you? Like- no, I, I I did change majors, but not to industrial design. So I was an industrial engineering major, mm-hmm. and I decided that I should pursue mechanical engineering because yeah. I was in the program, and 
at the time, I just didn't know how to go down the path of being an architect. I felt like, okay, well, I'm in school. I think I can do this engineering thing. Right. So let me just finish because yeah, I'll have a job when I finish right. school. There was no really thought about like, how do I build a creative career? It was none of that. It was yeah. like, you know, being from a blue collar family, it was like, I want to get a good job. There's lots right. at the time, there were a lot of automotive jobs in the yeah. Midwest and this looked like a path. Right. So I changed my major to mechanical engineering and I spent more time drawing diagrams <laughs> and figuring stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was years before I actually realized what industrial design could, could do for me. Yeah. And so you was know. your first steps into it, um, in a, in a job or in, in a different kind of oh, job man. where you like, what was the first kind of, um, Moment. breakthrough step yeah, yeah in your the career moment, the moment yeah. so the moment was really special it was in troy michigan and i was working as a mechanical engineer after undergrad and i will never forget um walking into general motors um, one of their headquarters and i was there for a completely different project and i don't know how i got on the floor i got off on the wrong floor and i basically walked into a huge space where there were probably about 20 or 30 designers. Mm. And I didn't know what they were called at the time. I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, they're illustrators. And they were drawing, um, they were drawing by hand um, on paper. Mm. A few of them who looked super advanced actually had monitors. <laughs> so, you know, this is like early 2000s. Yeah. And I see them sketching and they're sketching these cars. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. Like, you know, in my mind, I know that someone is designing, someone's doing a styling for sure. these cars, but I'm like, is that here? And maybe <laughs> that's in California. Right. I don't know. Yeah. But here I am in Detroit, Michigan, and I look through the room that they're in, and in the back, there are clay models that someone's shaping. And there's a couple of people shaping them by hand. Wow. There's somebody who's using basically a, an early CNC router, you know, like old school, like, you know, typing in the mm -hmm. movements and it's machining a wheel. <laughs> and I see materials on the wall. I see colors. And I just thought, oh my goodness, this is crazy. This is this is where I want to be. Like, what is this? What <laughs> you is just this? stumbled onto yeah. like the amusement park? Oh, oh of my your, gosh! Uh... It was like it was like walking into destiny. It was that good. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was that moving. It was so moving that um, I, over the course of the next two years, figured out a path that would allow me to go and, and be in that type of environment. Wow. So I would say it was the environment. What does a studio mean to you, and what are the yeah. what are the like mm. the qualities of a, a studio that makes you feel comfortable? Like what what's in it, and what's you know what are all the components yeah. of it that make it feel like a place to thrive? Oh, that's an amazing question. A studio has to have tension. I think really great tension, and I think tension happens. Tension is a beautiful thing because I feel like you're constantly moving back and forth to sort out this equilibrium when you're in tension. So for me as a designer, I feel like I'm always in tension. I start off with something that's blank and then I, I need to fill it and then I need to clear it and then I need to fill it again. And so the studio for me, unlike, you know, any other environment, the walls are alive. There's things pinned up, there's materials pinned up, there's sketches, there's renderings pinned up. Um, there's post-its, there's thoughts, there's questions. 
And then right next to it is a blank wall. And, and then there's a little bit of panic, like, okay, we got some open canvas space. So like the thoughts need to continue. You keep imagining, you're trying to fill it and then everything's filled and you're overwhelmed and you're like, okay, capture, take down, start again. And for me, part of the tension is every time I have a blank canvas or a blank wall, it's this invitation to put something up because mm-hmm. I think when people walk in the space, that's your opportunity to let them feel that tension. You know, like, can you make this reality? Well, if you don't pin up anything, like, how do you even have a conversation about what's going to be reality? Hmm. So I think that um, the studio environment that has surfaces that are clean and then surfaces that are dirty, full of prototypes and stuff torn up and models, the walls that are clean, blank canvases, and then the walls that are full of all types of things that inspire and and maybe scare you because you think, how are we going to do this? Or, you know, and now everything is, is wider, right? There's strategy on the walls, there's timelines, um, there's, there's UI flows, there's all types of visualizations. But for me, when it first started in something that felt more of a traditional ID studio, it was this tension between lots of thoughts being manifested into this visual, um, this visual display yeah. of of color and and pop with the, the tension of having blank and and knowing like okay you have to make more to figure out more right right yeah. I love that and and you've worked at Coca Cola and yeah. IDEO as we mentioned yeah. Adobe now at Facebook mm. talk me through maybe one of those experiences yeah and an example of a project you worked on or even the environment. I'm, you know, I'm a, a fan of IDOs and I'm yeah. curious about what your experience was like there, but it really could be any of those, those places you've, you've, you know, really had such impactful projects at every kind of point. Yeah. Here. So talk to me a little bit about some memorable moments. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that just to continue the studio conversation for a little bit, that really, I feel has carried me through all these different experiences because they're all interrelated in some way are the types of relationships that show up in the studio. And I guess continuing with that tension thought for a little bit, somewhere like IDEO was full of that because you have a project space. It's not yours. It's borrowed. It's a hotel space. It's there for the, the, the brevity of the project, which could be as short as six weeks. It could be long as 18 weeks. And so because you go on site and you go on site, you're in the field, you come back, you're doing synthesis, you're meeting with the client and then you're designing in the space. Got it. So inherently it's a living, breathing space. And, you know, there are sometimes where it was like, we're, we're in here too much. We need to get out. And then there's other moments where you're huddled down in the studio and the doors are closed. And it's like, as a new designer, I would learn like, yeah, you don't disturb the team right now. Or you would see the directors of the studio interrupt a team because they needed to help them break through with something. So the project spaces were like these hotel rooms within the studio. Hmm. And those are probably the most memorable aspects of IDO for me because they truly are living walls. I mean, yes, the post-it notes, yes, the quick drawings and the thoughts and things like that. But the illustrators, the graphic designers, the, the um, the interaction designers who were working on flows and were working on um, even digital artifacts, that stuff would go up on the wall. Photos of people from the field were laid out 
like hundreds of photos. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we would come back from like visiting three cities on a whirlwind trip. Yeah. And you would just start canvassing the walls with folks, um, portraits and quotes. And it was so overwhelming sometimes right. to be in a project space. It, I mean, it almost, I, I can't describe it well enough. It was like you felt the history of the project hmm. you, or you felt you, and you felt the tension of it. You felt yeah. like, Hey, we're running behind or, Hey, we're going to have to go hard here for right. a couple of weeks. <laughs> right. You were immersed in it. I, you were, I was immersed in it. And right. so I think of everywhere I've worked, IDEO has probably had one of the strongest cultures in terms of respecting the project space and understanding how fundamental it is to create a living, breathing project space within the context of a studio, both yeah. for internal um, work and, and obviously for the client work. Hi, everyone. I want to tell you about our new sponsor, They're called Soothe, and it's the leading on-demand massage service. Now, you might think making ways, creative careers, massage, how are these things all connected? Well, I'll tell you, self-care and being kind to yourself and giving yourself time to daydream, time to exercise, time to sleep well and eat right and see friends and family and also get physical care is so important to the creative process and it's so important to being productive and getting great work done so i'm really excited to offer you all 20 dollars off your first booking with soothe if you go to soothe.com you can download the app and it's really amazing they will come to your house so all of this is at your home they can come to your office it's all on demand they can be there as soon as one hour from when you sign up for it. And they've got everything they need to show up at your house or your office or even your hotel to recreate the spa experience in that place. So they bring the linens and the music and the oils and everything. So check out Soothe. Go to Soothe.com. Use offer code MAKINGWAYS for $20 off your first booking. It's sponsors and partners like Soothe that make bringing this podcast to everyone for free possible. So I'm so excited to have Soothe on board. I hope you'll check them out. That's Soothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com. Okay, now let's get back to the show. And we were talking uh, before we started the interview about this time you were working at the startup, um, Mm. developing (laughs) uh, the the motorcycle motorcycle helmet with the 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 digital display of That's the right. rear Heads view up display yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and that was skull scully scully mm-hmm. and um and and you talked about you know that uh startup eventually came yeah. to an end and yeah. ip was sold and and you decided to start your own agency That's right. with some of the people that you had really bonded with at yeah. scully and i'd like to hear about that decision or that that force uh, you felt to go independent what those years were like and ultimately what brought you back to full time in, in your, in your career. And, and if you see lines between full time and independence, you see yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I see some things. I think for me personally, there was a level of ambition around building teams for a while. I became very interested in building and leading teams. And so there are consequences to that. And at the time, I didn't quite understand that. Not necessarily bad consequences, but consequences in themselves. Um, I think 
for me, leadership was a super attractive thing, but I did not realize how heavy leadership could be. I really didn't understand that. So for me at the time, at the time with IDEO, I felt like I could run a program. I felt like I could organize a team. I could understand the different disciplines. I, I felt this aspect of myself that was, that was um, I guess, multisensorial. So I felt like I could gravitate to digital. I could gravitate to ID. I could see the business part of it. And I, I started to feel like where some people were able to go really deep, I was able to go really wide. Yeah. Now, I think that there were paths that would have allowed me to continue to do that as a designer. And I could have exercised it in a different way as, as a creative. But ultimately, I think what it led me to do was chase after the possibility of being a creative director. Mm. So I became fascinated with this. It was almost like a incessant desire to like drive work by building a team. Yeah. So the decisions to go to Dolby and then eventually even to make the decision to go to Scully were a lot of those pivoted off of this desire to to build a team to find really different talented indiv- individuals and and almost create like this Marvel universe of like super talent mm-hmm. that would take on projects and I felt like that gave me the ability to touch a lot of different stuff interact with a lot of different people and I just felt like I think I could be really good at this so that was part of the drive and I think that along the way I started to realize this is actually a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Um, (laughs) So even at Scully, when that team came together, I thought this is my opportunity. I'm going to build a really great um, multidimensional, really um, layered team that would allow lots of us to work in different capacities, touch different work. And, and through that, we're going to produce these incredible results, uh, yeah. these compelling results with with whatever it is, like from the ID all the way through the marketing, we're going to see this level of, of 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 congruency that would be really really powerful. That was my dream, right? Yeah. That was my vision, and so I felt like so much of my effort that put me in the places that I've I've been in was initially driven by this desire to build and run teams. Yeah, yeah. And so, what was the hardest part you discovered about leadership? <laughs> Um, leadership requires a level of humility that is very elusive for sometimes people who have big visions. Um, because when you have a big vision and you're motivating people, I find that I often have to get out ahead of like doubts and and fears and, and worries. And I have to, I have to drive in a way that I have to drive in a way that sometimes leaves behind even some of the doubts that are in the room about what we're about to do. Right. But because of that, there are, there are moments where I'm not always listening as well, or I haven't listened as well. And I haven't paid attention to other aspects of, of what's going on in terms of the business or the structure of the organization. Yeah. And so I think the humility gets lost because I have a strong perspective um, I feel like I have a team behind me and we just need to drive this vision. We need to show results. And so it becomes, it, be, it can become, it, and for me, it did hard to, to, to take a, a level of humility yeah, and, and exercise humility in the sense of really understanding, okay, how are we serving 
the organization? How am I serving my team? Mm-hmm. Am I serving my team really well? Yeah. Um, does the way we go about building our culture or taking on things with this process ultimately serve us well in 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 our careers and our lives? Right. There, there's another level of consciousness around that that I I had no clue about. Yeah. At all. <laughs> so how long when I got going? <laughs> right. So how long did you do? Yeah. You know, kind of fill this this role before you realized you wanted to switch it up and and go uh, go back in house. Yeah. Uh, well, so when I ran forecast for yeah. it was about seven eight months that we ran forecast really hard. Right. And forecast studios was born out of Scully. You, we were chatting about this a little bit, but Scully right. breaking down and yeah. feeling like I had great synergy with this this creative team, uh, copywriters and videographers and 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 a couple of interaction designers and then I was doing industrial design of mm-hmm. course and and some branding and I thought okay we can take this team and we can build something really great and we did we we built a lot of great stuff but then I started to realize like there are so many more things to running a studio that I had not considered Besides just making the Besides work and just being surrounded delivering by great work great people, yeah. and being surrounded by great people. Sure. And there were things that I was able to do with some level of capacity, winning the contracts, putting together the proposals, leading our own branding, looking at the forecast mm-hmm. and trying to determine how we were going to grow accounts, how we were going to develop relationships, who yeah. we needed to add on to the team. And my days were, were never ending. I'd start at five. I'd, go until i was just exhausted and i was i i was so motivated i was so passionate i was having such a great time and and i think this is relatable maybe to a lot of creatives like you can be completely immersed in your work and immersed in what you're doing and completely start to forget how to take care of yourself sure how to just be with the rest of the world and that was part of what was happening. And especially because there was a lot of pressure to make sure that we were getting paid. And I realized how much money we needed to make. Right. So initially, like when I remember when I won my first $40,000 contract. Yeah. And at the time I was like, I can't believe I just won 40K and they're going to they're gonna send a check this week. We right. really did that. Right. And the team's doing cartwheels and we're like, we're all going to go to the Apple store. <laughs> and you know, it's like, you get a laptop, you get a laptop. I mean, it was like super exciting. <laughs> and and then like you know reality starts to set in because it's like those dollars go really fast right and what i also started to realize is i didn't have partners there wasn't um a, a couple of people who were at my nucleus who were worried about the business and worried about accounts and worried about okay are we getting lunch today right i had people who were amazing at what they do and that's what we were doing we were we were knocking out the work and but we weren't really we weren't in a position to scale. Yeah. And I think at that point I realized this is amazing. This is something I love. Maybe I come back to this. Maybe I don't. I feel very proud about it because we actually survived in in San Francisco <laughs> right. and paid our rents. Right. And it was through the work we were doing. Yeah. And I don't know if it was award-winning work, but clients were really happy, which meant something to us. Yeah. And I think once forecasts started to tailor down, and people hired out to get benefits. <laughs> right, right. Little things like that. Uh, little things like benefits. That is when I started to, to to really analyze what 
this next path would be like. And I took a step back and I said, you know what? I've been managing people. I've been managing process. I've been managing design. I've been managing clients. I've been managing teams. I've been directing the work. And I love that. But I miss having time with the craft. And I think the question was, what would happen if I started to explore the craft again? Yeah. You know, am I too late? Am I too rusty? Have I been away from it too long? Um, so there's a bit of a, an experimentation that's happening now. It's one of the reasons that I decided to try Facebook right. and try it in this capacity. Because I am not completely sure if working purely as an industrial designer will still be my path. Right. But it allows me to get my hands dirty again. And yeah. I think that's what I was missing was getting my hands dirty in the actual craft as opposed to just spending my time, only spending my time primarily with people. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. It seems like mm -hmm. that's whether you experiment in, in making businesses and making teams yeah. uh, or you, you go back to that craft of, of making, getting your hands dirty mm -hmm. that you loved when you were just starting out as a, as a, a little mm -hmm. human um, it seems like that idea of, of creating, but doing it really thoughtfully and from this very kind of hardcore engineering mm -hmm. standpoint is, is really just, uh, you know, just inside of you at, at all times. And what do you, how do you view that kind of doing work for clients versus doing work for, you know, mm -hmm. internally at companies? Do you feel like your, your, your mindset kind of changes a bit and it's a different approach you have, or is it just a matter of, know what the the project the mission in front of you whether that be internal or external oh that's a great question i think that right off the cuff when it comes to working with clients the conditions are i would say a lot more aggressive because you either are building advocacy or you are you're in a situation where you have lots of expectations a lot of excitement and then you have to deliver so it's not just the creative aspect. It's not just the, the process of getting from A to B with the product, but it's also, it's, it's a big, it's a big focus on how you're able to carry forward what you're doing into the hands of the client, because right. there are so many projects that stop once you hand them over to a client. Mm -hmm. And the goal, I think, as an industrial designer is to actually help that client carry this vision beyond where they could carry it on, on their own. And I think that it's almost a disservice to do a lot of design work, hand it over to a client and then expect them to just go and be successful. I think right. it's, it's such a, it's a lot of relationship building. That's why I say advocacy and, and this level setting with expectations. It's so much relationship building that sometimes that's even more important than just delivering in a really powerful way with the work. Yeah. It, it's like, how do you actually set the work up to be successful? Mm -hmm. Internally, it's really different, I find, because if I am not able to get super passionate about the vision, for me, it's very difficult to figure out a way to navigate the project through um, the different types of challenges that um, a project can experience in a large organization. So right. uh, that's a very abstract thing. I want to be like really, really concrete with this. Yeah. Internally, you are often faced with projects where there aren't really many people behind them. 
um, because there's question marks. There's question marks in terms of, you know, are the products going to be the right things for the business? Right. And there's a lot of, I would say, um, taking the time to make sure that you're solving the right problems. I, I, that's inherent in everything we do as, as designers, especially as industrial designers. But typically what I find with clients is they have a problem that they really want to solve. Right. And we're going out and we're trying to figure out, okay, how do we gain the insights to inform that problem? And then let's creatively solve it. Yeah. And then let's help you be really successful with it going forward. You're going to carry it forward. When you're internal to an organization, I think that inherently you're trying to frame the right problem. You're trying to find out what are the right things that we need to solve right now. Because if we don't do that, then ultimately you could be going down the path with lots of money. Right. And it's really hard to turn a big ship. So finding out ways to make sure that um, you have a strong compass in terms of how that problem is going to be framed, whether it's a business case, um, whether it's uh, understanding the the types of, of of product categories or or even the product space that makes sense for the organization there's a there's a little bit more work that goes into the strategy right when it comes to being in an internal organization so i find that the people element's still there but strategically i approach it differently than when i'm working with a client yeah and it sounds like you also have to have some fortitude or or find some light at the end of the tunnel when something lands on your plate that you feel less than enthusiastic about. Yeah, that's right. You, I have to find a way to get passionate about the project because there's certain times where just setting up the framing for a project can be, can, can take months. <laughs> right. And, and there's uh there's still a lot of effort to, you know, make sure that that framing carries through as the rest of the project starts to come into interview yeah. yeah and just a, a a note on our conversation i kept saying adobe but you worked with, uh, dolby. with dolby dolby laboratories dolby. Yeah, yeah yeah dolby so, laboratories yeah. um different thing there just yeah. want to point out for, for <laughs> listeners sometimes i get things wrong yeah um i want to hear a, a little bit if there's been a kind of a low point in your mm. career or your you know your 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 path in this direction was there a moment where you felt lost or not supported or not as confident about the work Mm -hmm. and i wonder if you if you could kind of go back and yeah have a chat with yourself what you might say in order to get you over that that hump because Mm -hmm. you know a lot of people face that kind of yeah that's true those kind of dips as they're as they're going oh man is, is there is there a moment that that you that you had recently um, as recent as uh, when Scully went down um, because I at the time was so used to not separating myself, my well-being from the project. And I think that when that company went down, I had a lot of really difficult feelings because I had invested so much effort in helping the company be successful. and knowing that I was deeply involved in the industrial design, knowing I was deeply involved in the brand and then seeing the company not make it to the level of success that we had anticipated was probably the first feeling of unsuccessfulness that I had had in that major of a way. Yeah. 
And I bring up that story because I feel like I was lost for a little bit in terms of, of, of measuring myself. Because up until that point, I had always measured myself personally based on how successful I was with what I was doing in terms of a project. And it caused me to separate my well-being, how I felt about my life, how I felt about my loved ones, my friends, my time here in the Bay. Yeah. It caused me to separate that from how successful I felt with the project. Sure. And I, I know that may sound like a really simple thing, like an obvious thing, but for me, it, it wasn't. There, there wasn't a part of me that was like completely separate where it was like, yeah. this is my well-being. I, on the weekends, I do all these activities. Yeah. and Your value, your worth, your energy, my, everything yeah. was wrapped up in what and, you were making. And what I was making. Right. And, you know, I look at that and, and I would, if you asked me a great question, like if I could go back and tell myself, I would literally begin to coach myself over time about how to separate my well-being from the project. That you know, going around and constantly saying, this is my baby. There, there's consequences to that. That's not an inconsequential statement. You are weaving yourself deeply with what you're producing. And I think there's times where that's super healthy because you're going to yield something that has your fingerprints to the world. And it's, and it's really, it's rich, right? It's rich with with all of the creative energy and juices that you can throw at that thing. But then I also would have started to work with myself on, okay, this is where you, you have to pull back right now because you can't control this. Yeah. Like this is the fact that they're going to go with this tooling or the fact that this is not going to go the way that you're expecting right now in right. terms of what's being produced. You don't have control over right. that. And so as opposed to being upset, and feeling all of these negative feelings. So what would be like yeah. the practical things you would yeah. have said to yourself to like start breaking away? Like yeah. just make sure you're sleeping, eating, exercising, or, or, or you can't say, hey, care a little less about what you're doing, right? It's not that. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, I'm sure your former That's self right. would have been like, get out of here, yeah. man. Who are you? But yeah. what, what, what are those practical things like to, to help you separate? I would have told myself, and it's what I'm trying to practice more now. Part of my well-being is finding ways to do some things for others in contexts that are very different from being purely in the creative zone. Um, I would have probably told myself on the weekends, you need to, um, you know, go serve at a restaurant, um, or you need to take a uh, you know, a, a class where you're, you know, making stuff for other people, you know, whether it's uh, making, you know, gift kits for for people who, who need kits in other places or, you know, whatever it is, get out and, and you're running with a team that is is running for a cause. I would have I would have brought more of that that I have now in my life to then, because what I find is when I'm doing these high energy activities um, not just for myself, but actually for other people or with other people for other people, it begins to set this level of balance in my life again. Like I begin to feel like I'm still contributing, um, which is ultimately what I want to do as a creative, but I don't have the pressures that I would feel constantly when my emotions are deeply tied up into a project. And so what I find is while I'm doing those things, I, I can let go a little bit more. 
and that feels good. And right. it's not just getting out and doing something for yourself. I this is now this is totally my opinion. I'm totally just offering something up here, but going out and doing an activity wasn't enough for me. Going out and working on a side project, a side business wasn't enough for me because I still felt like there were other reasons behind it, like good intentions, but there were other reasons and there was nothing wrong with those things. But then I would find like, oh, I'm going to design a logo for this nonprofit or I'm going to design a logo. I actually did this recently for a baker in the mission Oh, cool! who doesn't have the money or the time really to invest on doing a branding project. But I just wanted to do it for him. I love his empanadas. I I get them along with my my coffee down the street when I was working in the city. And I was like, I just want to work on this for you. And And I started doing more stuff like that. And I find that it just still allows me to be creative, um, but I'm contributing in this way that takes me completely away from like the demands that I might have on a project that has that has some real consequences to it. Yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. Donald, thank you so much for joining the oh, show. Oh, man, this, this is been... amazing. I hope I gave something great oh, you to did? everyone. You I did. really have so many stories, but like I really feel like this has been so special just to share what I've been able to share. And Rob, like this show is amazing. And That's I so really kind. hope that um, you know people are able to, to take something from it. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Donald. I know they will. It's been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Let's do it again. Yeah, let's do it. We'll check in. <laughs> that was our conversation with Donald Burlock. Donald, thank you so much for joining the show sharing so much about your path, the lessons you learned, and some of the pitfalls that you've experienced in your career and some of the high points too. If you're interested in learning more about Donald, go to makingways.co. It is our website for all things Making Ways. You can sign up for our newsletter there, see the illustrations I do of each guest, and learn more in the biographies and show notes for each of our guests. If you haven't yet, it would mean a ton if you'd head on over to iTunes and leave a review for Making Ways. Even better, if you're enjoying the show, think about forwarding it to a friend and saying, hey, I think you'll dig these conversations all about creative careers. I hope you all feel a little more inspired today, a little more energized, maybe learned a little something. And thank you again so much for listening. Making Ways intro music is by The Sandworms, and we've got some music by Jim Heffernan in the mix. Making Ways is edited and sound engineered by Jim Metzendorf. It is produced by me, your host, Rob Goodman. And thank you all so much for listening. I'll see you soon.